Cool. Welcome back, everyone, to the Puget System Podcast. Uh, my name is Matt Bach, and today I'm joined by Michael Thomas. Uh, and Michael, why don't you give a brief introduction about yourself, and then we'll get into like what our our topic is for this podcast. Sure. Hi, Matt. Uh, Michael Thomas. I'm a creative technologist. Uh, I've been a zeros and ones geek for several years. Uh, I was a former creative. I was a sound editor for many years. Uh, and then uh, about 10, 15 years ago, I decided I like working with the zeros and ones better than I liked uh, cutting sound effects. So I stepped more into the uh, technology realm, and that's led to consulting, that's led to building systems, uh, and that's led to uh, my web series, which is called Five Things, uh, where I talk about the technology that facilitates creative usage. Uh, and I'm also currently the Director of Business Development at Bebop Technology, uh, which handles virtualizing post-production in the cloud. Yeah, so that's a great lead-in because, yeah, what we're going to be talking about today is uh, just kind of, I mean, it's just really mostly about editing in the cloud, but I kind of want to lead up a little bit with like uh, some of the alternatives. Uh, I mean, right now we're recording this in the midst of the coronavirus lockdown. Everybody's working from home. Uh, and so, I mean, there's tons of podcasts, there's tons of YouTube videos about people talking about exactly this topic. So I do want to take this a little bit of a different direction. People are working from home. Uh, we talked about this a little bit before we actually started recording, but there's really like you mentioned like three different ways that you can achieve, you know, being able to edit video or audio or motion graphics uh, from home. And you just want to kind of go over what those uh, options are. Sure. There's the the first, which is the path of least resistance, and it's the uh, least expensive, and it's the first thing people traditionally do, which is okay, I need to localize all my media on drives and then securely take those drives home and then edit with. Uh, either my dusty old laptop that's sitting in the garage or take my edit system from the office home. Uh, and then you're exchanging project files back and forth. And I'm sure all of us at some point have had a workflow like that. And I think that that kind of a workflow works really well for people who are like freelancers. There's really only like one editor working on a project, maybe two, because it's really hard to coordinate all of that media and all those edits across multiple people. Is that correct? It is. And it comes down to a security issue as well. Uh, a lot of production companies uh, are hard guns, right? They're getting content that was done by another entity and do their contracts allow them to allow media to leave the facility? And if it leaves the facility, does that media have to be on a hard drive that's encrypted? And does that mean that the systems that you're working with at home have to be air-gapped and not on the internet? So there's, there's that portion, but there's also the well, since I can't go and knock on the door of the producer or director, how am I sharing these cuts with them? How can I play it back in real time so they can watch it, so I can see their facial expressions, uh, rather than just doing an email back and forth uh, or like a frame IO back and forth, which is uh, what they call asynchronous review and approve. Yeah. Okay. So what's uh, you would consider like a almost, I, I don't know if it's a level up, but an alternative to that kind of method. Yeah. When security becomes a, a, an issue and, and moving the hardware or media uh, outside of the facility becomes an issue, then we get into uh, remoting into the system. And, and of course there's different, uh, I mean, we can argue semantics all day, but uh, when you are remoting into the system, it's where your computer back at the office, back at the facility uh, is running a screen share application and you're able to log into that machine from wherever you are, uh, going through your network, going through your security. And because no media ever leaves that machine or that facility, because you're just using a window into that facility, uh, security is much better. The issue we run into is that um, screen sharing is very susceptible to uh, weak internet connections, traffic on the network, and creatives need 
full frame rate. They need a decent color gamut and color space. They need sync audio and video. And if you can't get that from a screen share, the creative process becomes infuriating. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And uh, just for everyone's information, like that, that is an area that actually we deal with uh, quite a bit in our labs department, which is where I work, where we do hardware testing and we publish articles and all that stuff. Uh, because we have so many platforms and especially now with us all working from home, we use a hardware solution of screen share, basically. It, they're called IPKVMs. They're little boxes you buy. They're actually fairly expensive, like 500 bucks. Um, but you plug them in, they go onto your network and they're like having an extension of your mouse keyboard and monitor plugged into the machine. So there's no like CPU overhead, but you need like IT to like set up port forwards and all this other jazz. It's not nearly as simple. And it's also, um, I found that it's not, it, it would be terrible to edit with because they're really intended for like IT staff, like managing servers. So the mouse lag is like half a second. It, it's not great. The quality, the video quality is actually impressively good, but that lag is is not great. So yeah, even those like solutions where you can pay a lot of money there, there's a lot of downsides to doing that for us it's great because we just log in and hit go on a benchmark and we don't care but yeah trying to edit on something like that would be not very much fun um so beyond that i i, I imagine is where you get into cloud which is a lot of your specialty right now correct that's where we've been spending a lot of time and and luckily uh, back to the on-prem kind of uh, remote uh, for a moment, there are some mm -hmm. solutions that do give you, uh, shall we say, a hybrid experience. The 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 technologies like Teradici or RGS, these the software and sometimes hardware solutions that are giving you low latency, decent color, 8 or 10 bit, uh, stereo audio um, that, that are not exactly like being in front of the machine, but that are so much better than the freemium or or shareware type applications like TeamViewer or VNC or go to my PC or any one of these uh, other uh, kind of, shall we say, pedestrian type screen sharing protocols. The, the higher end protocols like Teradici, those are the same ones you're gonna find in cloud uh, workflows when you're editing in the cloud, you're using Teradici uh, or others to get into the cloud to edit as well. So there is a little bit of a bleed over there. Right, because when you're editing in the cloud, at, at least with all the current implementations, that that's basically just a remote desktop to the cloud. Um, I mean, I know there are some you know solutions that'll actually just do the processing in the cloud, and then you know, a lot of the actual user input on the local. But that's not something that's currently possible on something like Premiere Pro or After Effects or Resolve. Correct. Now, we we if you start dealing with things like deadline, uh, right, and 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 queuing and and rendering solutions or, or solutions that facilitate render, uh, then you can look at offloading the processing to the cloud. But you still are uploading some kind of content to the cloud to get rendered, and then you're pulling it back down while your computer GUI, your machine is still local, just the processing is happening in the cloud. So that's been happening for several years. I mean, VFX houses have had to do that because of the immense cost in buying you know, a ton of 200 core machines that can do all your rendering on premises plus HVAC and all that. So there, are de there definitely has been some, uh, 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 some applications that can utilize uh, the cloud for processing, but I think by and large, when you get into editorial, so your Avid's, your Adobe's, uh, et cetera, you're looking into doing everything in the cloud and you're simply using your local machine as a window to that machine and storage in the cloud. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think that's mostly what we want to kind of be talking about today. Um, cause I, honestly, I think it's very interesting. Um, I, I'd be very curious to 
hear kind of what people's thoughts are when they start listening to this topic or, or us talking about this, because I think a lot of people would look at this and think that me and you are on opposite sides. We're almost, you know, competitors, you know, we're trying to sell workstations. You're trying to, you know, promote, uh, you know, the advantages of editing in the cloud. Uh, but to me, it's not really an us versus them. I mean, you know, us at Future Systems, we've always been trying to look towards the future. What are things going to do in the future? And, you know, because our end goal is just to help content creators create. And right now, we feel we do that the best through, you know, offering our workstations. In the future, that could be cloud solutions. After that, who knows what will happen. So for us, it's not really about a, again, an us versus them. It's it's what's the best for each individual person. I actually attended your uh, NAB session or one of them uh, last year. So I have a little bit of a head start on this. But I know that one of the things that you've said, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, is that editing in the cloud right now is not for everything or not for everyone. Um, is that kind of still your, your take on it? It, de- it definitely is. I think there's a couple or a handful of things that are prohibiting uh, more of a, a mass adoption. Uh, and I'll try and refrain from going on a, a soapbox here, a rant. But uh, first is cost. Um, it's not massively expensive, but you are looking at several hundred dollars and even over a thousand dollars per month uh, for a small work group or, or or a user or two to be editing in the cloud, and and a reason for that, uh, and and when I say cloud, I'm referring to uh, public, what we call CSPs or cloud service providers, right? There's four biggies out there. There's your AWS, your Amazon, your GCP, Google, your Microsoft Azure, and then you have IBM. Uh, the great thing about these data centers is they're all around the world, so no matter where you are, you can get storage compute, GPU, and I'm sure you know this, Matt, uh, you need more than just storage. You need more than just Wasabi or Backblaze. You need to have all of those ingredients to have an NLE. And so by using these public CSPs, these cloud service providers, you can get those three ingredients and edit anywhere. And because these public CSPs, there's only a handful of them, prices are still kind of high. We're looking at hundreds of dollars a month per terabyte just for block storage. Um, and you know, they're still charging a couple dollars an hour for the workstations. And, and when you start adding all of that up, not only do you have that added cost, but you have this, I don't want to say break from reality, but you have a break from, well, I'm used to buying a machine and using it 24 seven and not incurring any cost. But when I use it in the cloud, I'm incurring a cost for every hour I use it. And so folks aren't used to managing their computer time like that. And that's a whole different way of thinking about things than what we've been doing for the past several decades. Yeah, you know, that almost makes me, this isn't a perfect analogy, but it almost makes me think of how like Adobe, when they switched from you buy a license and it's yours to a subscription model, uh, a lot of people still are not happy with that. But man, if you actually do the pricing out of how much it costs to buy a license outright versus, you know, doing a subscription, it's actually not that unreasonable. because buying a license was expensive. Oh, I got to thank Adobe for for being, you know, they say the uh, uh, piners get the arrows, settlers get the land. Uh, Adobe, yeah, Adobe was the pioneer and uh, in our industry. They, they took it on the chin and they got the ire of just about everyone. To this day, people still get mad about it. But uh, it led the entire, the, almost the entire industry now has moved towards that kind of thing. And I, and I understand people want to own it. But, you know, if you want the company to support the software and continue to innovate, they need income. So, I, I, you know, I, I kind of see it from both sides. But you're right. The, the concept of you buy it, you own it and use it unlimited or 
the now rental model uh, is a very decisive one and the cloud falls right into that. I What I would love to see, uh, and if any cloud manufacturers are listening, there needs to be a an all-you-can-eat methodology. There has to be some math that says, hey, the average user will use this 70 hours uh, a week or 40 hours a week, whatever. And then they start offering a all-you-can-eat. And of course, there's going to be some people who are going to take advantage of it. And of course, there's some people who are going to pay for more than they use. But there has to be an easier way to break that apprehension for folks who are worried about the potential rising costs of hourly usage. There has to be something that cloud manufacturers can do to make it more appealing. And I think what you're going to see is these public CSPs um, are going to start having their lunch. Other folks are going to start eating their lunch because private data centers are going to pop up. Ones that, uh, you know, we're going to park ourselves in Northern California and we're just going to service folks on this side of the country. And we don't need to put one in the East uh, East Coast or put one down South. We're just going to handle things here. And because of that, we're not going to charge egress charges or we're going to say, here's a flat fee or here's a a good, better, best scenario and just pay. And that's what you're locked into. And I think once that happens, you're going to see uh, uh, not only lower prices, but much more of a mass adoption. And it's going to cause the the large CSPs, the public CSPs to start dropping their price. You know, that, that's really, I never really thought about, yeah, these private cloud providers that might pop up, but there's a lot of advantages to something like that. I mean, pricing you've already talked about, but also, you know, if there is someone who is focused on editing, you know, editorial, they can make sure that their servers are really the right hardware for it. Because one of the problems with the cloud is that all of the hardware that these servers are based on are geared towards mass compute. So it's tons of cores, um, that kind of thing. Whereas something like Premiere Pro or After Effects, like tons of cores only can get you so much. So it's uh, it's not really the right hardware for what they're doing. But if there was someone who was making a dedicated, uh, not really private, but uh, cloud that's made for that, they can actually tweak their hardware even to make it even a better experience than going with Google or AWS. We're already seeing that. I mean, if you look at uh, the aforementioned Wasabi and Backblaze, their storage costs are, you know, uh, uh, a sliver of what the big three provide. Uh, they don't have egress charges. Uh, a lot of them have been doing away with that. So, I, and, and they're essentially private data centers. When you start getting that only with compute and GPU, you're going to see, again, much more compute in the cloud. And, and you point out a really, you, you make a really good point, Matt, about uh, about the hardware you find in data centers. And, and for the rest of the hardware and zeros and ones folks, you're uh, in the uh, audience here, you're completely right. You typically find higher uh, cores, but lower clock speed in the cloud compared to, I, I would assume, a lot of the systems that you're building, which is going to be uh, maybe not as many cores, but a much higher clock speed. Uh, but, but the cloud also offers things that, uh, I don't want to say the mere mortal may not be able to to get, but you know a lot of the systems come with hundreds of gigs of RAM, or they come with uh, 16 gig or multi 16 gig GPUs. And although those, uh, although those could be purchased, they're really expensive. So for a project, it may be better to use the cloud for that one month long project or two month long project rather than investing you know tens of thousands of dollars and then saying, okay, now I have to hustle to get some other jobs to pay for this. Yeah, that's, that is that is interesting. So you, you see um, one of the kind of people who would really benefit from cloud is the p- kind of people who 
yeah, like you said, spin up jobs, but they don't know how long they're going to need things. They just need something for that one time. Um, are there other people or I guess groups of uh, users that you would say like really, really benefit from the cloud? Uh, just to kind of set the stage, I imagine that one of them would be uh, companies that have editors across the world or across the globe. You know, they're all editing from different locations. It would be a huge pain to try to get them all media. But if they're all editing on the cloud, they only have one pool of media they're working off of. Is, is that one group that really would benefit? Well, in theory, yes. But in practice, you find that um, humans uh, are very sensitive to latency. Uh, there's a great website uh, called Human Reaction Test. Actually, if you Google it and go try it, you'll find out that the average human reaction time is about two tenths of a second, right? A little bit slower than the blink of an eye. So if you put all the data in one data center in the middle of America and then had people uh, on each side of the country, that could be okay. But you start saying, hey, you in, another, in the Netherlands, I want you to remote it and use media that's sitting uh, in middle America, USA, or in Australia. People are going to tear their hair out because that latency gets to be three-tenths of a second, four-tenths of a second, and you can't create like that. So that means we have to start replicating media replicating workstations, and that adds additional cost. And uh, because of the cost of data centers right now, replicating that may not be financially viable when the old model works. Uh, so what we're, we're seeing more and more, uh, the folks who are adopting it uh, fastest actually isn't Hollywood. And that's where I'm based and that's who I've been working with, but it's mainly corporate. And here's why. Corporate IT has been using the cloud for years. They get it. They get the fact that we use bare metal in the cloud. They're already using Citrix. They're all already using uh, VDI solutions. They're already using Microsoft, which is doing Office in the cloud. So for them to say, okay, the rest of our 100 employees, they're all on uh, uh, you know, thin clients and they're all accessing stuff from, from the internet uh, in real time. Uh, how about the marketing department? It's internal marketing. There's no air date. So flex schedules are a little bit more flexible here. We can just lump this into our AWS spend, which we're already doing every month anyway. Uh, and the IT already gets it. And there isn't the massive, just massive infosec uh, uh, for the film industry security guidelines. You know, corporate America does have security, but uh, the MPAA and TPN, uh, and and those kind of security restrictions have put the fear of God in just about every uh, major post-production facility. So we're finding corporate America tends to adopt cloud editorial uh, workflows a hell of a lot quicker than uh, Hollywood film and television. Hmm. Yeah, that's just, I, I remember hearing a story about how like LucasArts or LucasFilm, sorry, they like transport all of their you know footage by like armored truck with armored guards. Like they don't do anything over the internet. And yeah, I imagine those kind of people, it doesn't matter how good the security actually is. It's almost like even if it does come up to spec, they almost just don't trust it anyway. They just can't take any of those risks. Everyone is scared uh, downwind of the Sony hack. And, and you know, it, more often than not, and I hate to use the term fake news uh, because that just has so many connotations, but the concept of someone gaining access to something sitting in a data center somewhere has become unanimously, unanimously known as a hack. And that's the wrong term. A majority, a vast majority of things that are gained from the cloud without someone else's consent is through social engineering. It's someone guessing your mom's maiden name or your first dog or the street you grew up on, tricking you by phishing, 
and 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 using that kind of uh, uh, hack, uh, I would say hackery, but that kind of uh, uh, mischievousness to get into these systems. And that's what uh, people are labeling as a hack. So the cloud gets this bad rap of being in, uh, unsecure when in fact it's the human component that makes it uh, uh, not secure. Uh, and I don't know how to combat that. Uh, but there does need to be, just like the concept of, of renting versus buying and cloud versus on-prem, there needs to be kind of a, a, an awakening that it is doable, it is usable if it's done properly. Right. It, it comes back to the same thing. You know, if you write your password on a sticky note and stick it on your monitor, it doesn't matter how secure that password is. <laughs> Someone Correct. walks by it, they can just right there. Uh, so one question I've always had uh, with, with cloud solutions, this is a great opportunity to, for me to get an answer is uh, you already talked about latency and how it's it's fine as long as you're in the right or you're using the right um, cloud infrastructure that you know it's nice and close to you and all that kind of jazz. How do you handle things like lag spikes? So like right now, it seems especially bad because everybody is working from home, and I've noticed even myself like I'll be chugging along just fine, and then suddenly I'll I'll get a spike and it'll take a split second longer for you know something to load. Is that something that actually comes up often? Uh, when you're actually editing in the cloud or does it actually smooth out fairly well? It smooths out very well. And, and uh, the reason being is that a lot of the protocols that are used um, are really, uh, shall we say, uh, thrifty with the bandwidth. So if there is a spike, uh, there is usually enough overhead to cover it. Uh, we also, uh, and I'm sure people are going to disagree with this, but uh, each person. Each person has a different threshold for latency. Matt, if you went to a coworker's computer and sat down, it would feel odd for a, for a couple minutes, but then you adapt and it becomes okay. The desktop may be set up different. The icons may be different. The mouse tracking may be different, but you adapt to it because it's within that comfort threshold. And we find a lot of folks when they start using the cloud have that exact same uh, uh, experience. It takes them a few minutes and then it becomes natural. What we've done to ensure that that experience is, uh, I don't want to say transparent, but easily adaptable, is, is realize that there are a hundred different things from the moment you hit something on your keyboard to it being reflected on your screen that add latency. Whether it's hardware I.O., whether it's Bluetooth, whether it's the computer itself, whether it's the OS, whether it's the drive, whether it's the software, whether it's the monitor, whether it's the type of display, and that's just locally. We then take latency between you and your machine and the home router and uh, your switch maybe, and then going out to the neighborhood access point and then having that go up to where the cloud is and then everything that's happening in the cloud. There are, like I said, a hundred different things that add latency. So what we've determined is that if we can get a ping uh, from your home system to where your the, the data center is, if that can fall under 60 or 70 milliseconds. If we take that 60 or 70 milliseconds and then average out all the latency from your local machine and then uh, the, the latency of the machine in the data center, we find that gives a pleasurable editing experience. If you are getting above 70 and get to 80 and 90, uh, it's usable, but it's not as fluid. So it, although it's impossible to determine the exact latency between all your items at any one time, because there's always going to be fluctuation, uh, if we can keep the thing we can check at a moment's notice, which is the latency ping, the geographic ping, if we keep that at a, at a decent number, then users tend to have no issues. So 
one other thing that that just made me think of when you're talking about latency here, is there any issue with like audio and video being slightly, I mean, it's always, you have to deal with audio and video being slightly out of sync. That's why like Premiere has like offset settings. Um, is that something you have to deal with even more when you're editing on the cloud or is it mostly just like a, you set it once and it's fine or does it change from month to month, you know, as you know, are getting slightly different pings? We find that latency. And in fact, if you were to run a ping test right now from you to whatever data center, you may see variations within 10 milliseconds and uh, like maybe 50 milliseconds, then 55, then 65. Uh, but that actually to the human eye is imperceptible. Uh, you know, the average human reaction time is uh, 200, uh, two tenths of a second. So 200 milliseconds. So we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, a fifth of that or I'm sorry, uh, uh, 5% of that. Uh, and so it becomes imperceptible. Uh, if we look at the, uh, so the solutions that are, um, shall we say, the most popular ones like Teradici, right? Teradici is grabbing things from the buffer, both the video and the audio buffer on the machine. So they're virtually in sync when they get grabbed at the uh, server level. So when they get to you, they may have had a five millisecond var uh, variant, but you don't perceive that. Uh, that's why, and you mentioned this about Premiere, um, we, we, we actually have a, um, or Bebop, I should say, I keep saying we, Bebop actually has a technical note on this that says, hey, when you load up Premiere, go in your audio hardware latency settings, and by default, it's usually somewhere around 200 for, for whatever reason. Put that up to, put that down to 60, and that usually dials you in. Um, also companies like Teradici, uh, not to keep pimping Teradici, but they have a great tool that, um, is called, um, enhanced AV sync. And if I'm not mistaken, that delays the, uh, grabbing a video frame. Uh, so it has the video, so the audio and video have time to catch up when it gets to you. So there are things to tweak it, but usually if there's any variance between the two, um, you don't perceive it unless you haven't dialed it in to begin with. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that totally makes sense. There is something though I can bring up, and I think you as a fellow tech nerd will, will find this interesting, is that uh, a frame in video is the smallest amount, right? We can talk fields, but let's just stick with the basics. Let's say a frame. But you and I both know when you start dealing with audio, audio is 48,000 samples. So there are uh, units of measurement that are less than a frame. We have milliseconds. And if you're working with an NLE and you get to more than halfway past a frame and you hit stop, the NLE says, well, we can't go back because you've already hit the halfway threshold. We're going to jump you to the end of that frame. So we have seen where some folks will say, well, there's a frame latency. It's not a frame latency. It's less than a frame. It's half a frame latency. But because we are adding that additional latency of that geographic distance, we find some folks, it does jump to the next frame or appear to jump to the next frame. Um, and that's unfortunately just because we're still locked to the 24, 30, 50, 60 frames a second uh, uh, method of measuring video. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I wouldn't have even considered that. Um, so we're shooting for about a 45 minute webinar or not webinar podcast here. So we've got about 15 minutes left here. Um, I do sure. want to make sure we cover some of the most common questions. I mean, these are kind of things that I'm sure you have answered about a thousand times each in the last week. <laughs> uh, but just a couple of them I wanted to, just because I know I have gotten these questions. I have them myself. Sure. Um, I can tell you what one of those questions is going to be. Can I guess? Yeah. Can I guess? Uh, you can guess. Go for it. Why no Mac? Why no Mac in the cloud? Is that one of your questions? 
Oh, that was not going to be my question. We don't sell masks. Oh. <laughs> That's the question. No, but I, I imagine it must have something to do with the OS because I know like you can't do Hackintoshes legally. So I'm sure that has to do with uh, being able to virtualize it as well. Is that correct? Yeah, what it comes down to is the Apple EULA, the end user license agreement, uh, uh, forbids, shall we say, virtualization of the Mac OS on non-Apple hardware, which is why Hackintoshes are kind of a gray area, because what if you're using components that could you would find in a Mac OS build? Uh, but by and large, that means data centers, which are primarily bare metal running Linux or Windows, uh, you can't legally run the Mac OS. You can't buy it. You can't uh, emulate it. So obviously those data centers are out and the handful of Mac-based data centers around the world um, are not really meant for creatives. In fact, I was on the phone with one of them and I won't call them out. And I asked them the, that exact question. What if I needed a high quality screen sharing app to get in? And they, they said, use VNC. Hmm. And as anyone who's used VNC knows, that's great for installing software or remoting in and changing a, a lower third that you may have fat fingered, but it's not great for creatives. And because the Mac OS doesn't scale great in a virtualized environment, even if you are using Apple hardware, um, it becomes cost prohibitive and you don't get the amount of horsepower that you find um, in uh, in uh, Windows and Linux data centers. So as much as as, as uh, I want there to be a Mac solution, there doesn't seem to be a good cloud version of it, and there doesn't seem to be a good screen sharing application that allows uh, the Mac OS. Yeah, and I guess that's mostly um, Final Cut users that that's most going to impact. Because honestly, I mean, we've been telling people this for a long time is, you know, if you're using Premiere or Resolve, once you're in the application, like, yes, the keyboard shortcuts are a little bit different and it takes a little bit you know, time to retrain your muscle memory. Uh, but really, once you're in the application, it's the same. I, I'm in complete agreement. And uh, uh, I wish that that argument uh, and I'm not pointing fingers at you because I get, you know, I'm on the firing lines daily of folks saying we can't use the cloud bear creatives will revolt. And I say, look, there's an application you can run that enables your Mac keyboard. So you get, you know, your, your thumb and your option and command keys are there, but they say our creatives won't allow it. And, and a, a props to business owners for saying we respect our creatives enough not to force them into this. But on the other hand, it's, do you have any idea the corner you're pointing, you're uh, painting yourself into when you're xing out what a vast majority of the world runs on? Uh, because the creatives, you know, don't want to have any downtime and don't want to learn something new. So I'm really torn between the two. But but to your point, by and large, a vast majority of applications look exactly the same, have the same function. And now that we have things like ProRes on Windows for a lot of applications, the kind of holdout reasons for transitioning are no longer there. Yeah, it's really just the those Apple-only programs. Correct. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, the first thing that I was going to lead with uh, was actually uh, video quality, uh, because, you know, I, I deal with a little bit of like remote desktop kind of stuff. Um, you know, I've seen so often where people upload things to YouTube and it just compresses it all to hell and then it looks terrible. Um, you know, th there has to be some encoding going on in order to pipe this out. Like if you were actually piping raw video over the Internet, I don't even think that would be possible. Um, so there is definitely some encoding going on here. Uh, I, I'm sure you're going to say that the, the quality is great, but is, is there any times where it like breaks down? Like, it, can you can you do things like 10 bit, like uh, or dual monitors and, and things like that without it becoming a problem? No, I'm, I'll be straight with you. It's uh, it works for a lot of uses, and for other uses, it doesn't. Uh, if we're looking again at things like Teradici. 
uh, in order to get things down the internet pipe and to support two monitors, four monitors, HD and 4K resolution, there have to be some compromises. Uh, what what companies like Teradici do is they encode the screen uh, in different codecs. So your bin monitor, which doesn't have a lot going on and only has a few colors, um, that data rate of that portion of the screen is low because nothing's changing. The only thing that's changing is your playhead on the timeline and your program monitor. Uh, and then when that stops, the data rate drops. So there are ways to cut down on that bandwidth. But Teradici, again, I'm only calling them out because they're the most public about this, um, are 8-bit. So, you know, while things may render in 10-bit uh, or 12-bit or 16-bit, whatever your se uh, session is set to, um, your viewing window may be 8. But Teradici's also come out with PC over IP Ultra, and that's 10-bit. Uh, and that's newer. That's just beginning to get out in the marketplace. Uh, so video quality um, is certainly doable. Uh, what, what video quality isn't, um, let me rephrase that, what it is difficult to do right now without having budget and dedicated hardware is full frame, full motion video in an editorial space. Uh, mm. Protocols like Teradici and others excel at your computer GUI. But when you want to change 80% of the pixels every, every frame or more, that's a lot of data. And that's not something their protocol is best for. And that's when we start getting into things like NDI um, uh, and other more, shall we say, traditional video transport protocols. Um, and unfortunately, that isn't something that you can do from the cloud uh, without a lot of bandwidth, dedicated hardware, um, and, and a fat internet pipe. Um, there are companies that are doing it, you know, SohoNet does it, but uh, with Clearview Flex, but then again, they also have pipes to run it on and hardware to decode it. So um, for the average person right now to get full screen video playback in sync from the cloud uh, on a uh, modest budget, really difficult to do. Do you think it's mostly like the, I mean, we're in the US, so do you think it's like the US internet infrastructure that is going to be, need to have the biggest improvement uh, to enable that? Or is it more of a codec technology thing or a processing, like how much processing power there is on the, whatever is doing the encoding? What do you think is going to be the, the thing that's going to mostly hold us back on that or the thing that we're going to have to fix before it becomes possible? Man, that's a multifaceted question. So I'll, I'll I'll throw I'll do spaghetti and throw it against the wall. Uh, <laughs> a yes, we need more internet bandwidth. Uh, you know, given the te technological advancement of the United States, our internet connection is just so lagging. And and I'm hopeful that 5G will uh, in some way remedy that. But you know, we have to make sure it doesn't cause cancer first. Sorry, I, I just can't believe that that that's a thing right now. Anyway, <laughs> the other thing is that when you start working with data centers. Uh, unless you're working with a private data center where you can go in and install things, you're kind of stuck with the computers that they give you. So if you want uh, a machine that has an NLE to also encode that video to be streamed, as you know, now you're looking at the NLE to not only process things in real time for your edit machine, but also generate a live stream. And you normally don't want to do that on the same box, but you don't have a choice because you're beholden to the generic hardware that's in that data center. Lastly, we have the, the uh, uh, hardware issue, which is, okay, you're, let's say that by some magic, we're able to generate a stream in real time, low latency from the editorial box in the cloud, and then it gets down to you. It's an internet stream at that point. So now you need a hardware box to decode that so it becomes HDMI 
or SDI? And then is that video stream that coming to you, uh, how is that latency? Uh, are we using something intensive like uh, 265? Uh, if it's 265, man, we have to have a special chip to decode that. So there are a lot of obstacles to get that and also have that low latency. So I think there's gotta be several things that have to, uh, shall we say, change or get upgraded before we can expect that. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, one of the things I always try to theory craft, I, I guess a little bit, is, is trying to take a guess at how long it's gonna be before you know, these kind of like emerging technologies become mainstream. Um, years ago, like GPU acceleration was one. It was, you know, a lot of people are doing really cool things. And how long until it's in all of these applications? Um, and how long before everyone can use it? And I think cloud is one of the next big things. Um, I'm putting you a little bit on the spot here, but how long do you think it will be until we have a quarter of editors using the cloud or 50%? I'm really thinking it's going to be closer to five years. I know that uh, my uh, compatriots at Bebop, uh, you know, think less, but um, I think some other things have to happen. And this is where I got to tip my cap to uh, uh, Michael, Michael Cioni, who went over to uh, Frame.io after many years um, with LightIron and, and uh, Panavision and whatnot. He has a camera to cloud initiative, which is hey, you're shooting, why not have that content get beamed directly to the cloud? And obviously that plays right into Frame.io because then you can have you know review and approve with the content that's already in the cloud. I think when folks start seeing that it is possible to get stuff from onset to the cloud, they can realize, why should I download that? It's already in the cloud. I can already archive. I'm gonna have my five nines or 16 nines uptime. Why don't I just edit where it is? And I think when more people start adopting it at the front end of getting it up to the cloud, you're going to see a larger adoption. Couple that with the lower price points, which means all the objections of it's too expensive and I have to upload all my content. Once those two things are erased, um, that's when you'll see much more of an adoption. And I think we're going to see that happen in the next five years. Uh, but just like film, there's always going to be holdouts. There's always going to be people, you know, the, the digital revolution happened 20 plus years ago, and yet there's still people who say we use film. So there's always going to be holdouts. Uh, but uh, to your point of 25%, I think within the next four to five years. Yeah, I think that's a pretty reasonable guess because, I mean, like you said, it's all about processing wherever the data is. And there's going to be those people who are able to be on the front end of that and get those cameras that are capable of doing that. They have those 5G connections. And then there's going to be all the people that are still, you know, using the black magic pocket cinema camera that they've had for five years or, or whatever that doesn't have that capability. I think you're also, you're also going to have folks who have already invested a good amount into systems that you've built and they're going to sit on that and they're going to say, look, I just bought this system. And why should I throw it away and start using the cloud? So they're going to squeeze every bit of life out of that on-premise hardware. And every facility is going to say, look, we just did a massive CapEx spend for all these new machines. We're not going to move to the cloud until it's time for a, until a, for a refresh. And that's usually anywhere between three and five years or, you know, if you're like a PBS station every decade. <laughs> so uh, there is going to be some time where it won't make sense for facilities to do it. Um, uh, until they've, you know, uh, uh, wrung the last drop of power out of their on-premise workstations. Yeah, it almost makes me wonder if a lot of this drive is actually going to come from uh, more of the, like, home users. I mean, all these people that are just using their iPhone or their Android phone, 
and that's what they're using to shoot their content, which I'm always amazed at how many people are doing that, you know, of, of our own customers. And, you know, but that kind of stuff, like I know on my phone, everything syncs to Google. Like all of my stuff is immediately on Google Drive. And, you know, in those kind of cases, like you already have a device that is constantly uploading everything. And a mm -hmm. lot of those people do not have very powerful workstations, yet their phone is shooting in HEVC codecs. That is a huge pain, especially if it's like, you know, variable frame rate. And so in those kind of cases, that might be, you know, kind of where a lot of that drive might come from. I think what you're also going to see is, uh, and this has been happening for years, and that's the, uh, I don't always use the term fat cats, but when you look at larger facilities that have fleets of editors and fleets of VFX artists and everyone's on staff and they have petabytes of storage, there will still be a place for those. But what you're going to see is smaller companies are able to say, look. I can hire 10 freelancers. We can all edit in the cloud. I'm only paying for the month or two that we're working on this project and then spin down. So it will allow smaller companies to work on larger pro projects. And uh, I think that'll level the playing field in terms of who's able to generate this kind of uh, content in post-production. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting. Uh, so we have just a couple minutes here left. Um, are there any final thoughts? I mean, any uh, services you recommend people checking out or anything like that just to kind of uh, close up things here? Well, uh, my web series, Five Things, fivethingsseries.com. Uh, I put on an episode a couple months ago that was on post-production for the cloud. And I cover everything from camera to encoding to transcode to storage. And it's done without any kind of leanings toward a, a, any kind of service or product. And I mainly did it because we were so locked in to the, we buy gear, we sit in a room, uh, a dark room and edit and go home. We're so locked into this, how we do things because we've optimized how we work so uh, so much that uh, we're afraid to try anything different because we may edit slower or our product may not be as good. Um, and I what I wish for people to, to do is to realize you can change how you do things and still have a good product. And in some cases, maybe have a better product or be more flexible. And to also realize that it's not the cloud versus on-prem. You can accentuate the positives of both and use the and use the benefits of both without it being an us or them. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think a lot of it is all about working together on, on things and using the right tool for the for the job that you're doing. Completely agree. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for coming on here. I know this was uh, a little bit of a last minute thing as here as we're all trying to plan for this virtual NAB that's coming up here next week. You're welcome. Thanks a lot for your time, Matt. Thank you very much for joining and thank you everybody for listening.